0: Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news...
0: You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. As far back as history can take you, you'll find that the inhabitants of the land that we call Nova Scotia have maintained a deep connection to the Atlantic Ocean. It started thousands of years ago with our indigenous people, the Mi'kmaq, and it continues to this day. We rely on our fishery, forestry, shipbuilding and trade, just as these industries rely on access to the water that surrounds us. And this relationship doesn't stop with our economic or nutritional needs. The Atlantic Ocean's waves crash against nearly every aspect of our culture. Tourists come to see it. Our artists paint and sing about it. And when the sun is at its fiercest, it's to who we turn to for relief. But for me, as someone with an interest in my region's weird and wonderful happenings, something that I find endlessly fascinating is the role the Atlantic Ocean plays in many of Nova Scotia's most enduring mysteries. One such example is that of the Oak Island Mystery an island that for over 200 years has served as a battlefield for a war treasure hunters have waged on what they believe to be vague clues left behind by some unknown people from across the Atlantic. Then, in a more modern but equally storied example, there's the unanswered question of who or what crashed into the dark waters of Shag Harbor back in October of 1967. Now, these may be only two examples, but they're among what I've always considered to be Nova Scotia's big three mysteries. The third may be the lesser known of the trio, but it's an incredible story, and we're about to hear it. It's not surprising that it too involves mysterious strangers arriving to Nova Scotia's shores by way of the Atlantic Ocean. But in this case, they didn't crash in a UFO, and they didn't seem to bury any treasure. It seems like all they did was desert a speechless, legless man on a beach in the Digby area of Nova Scotia. Who he was, why his legs were cut off, and how exactly he came to arrive on that beach are all questions that have gone unanswered in the 150 plus years since his sudden arrival. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, our topic is Jerome, the mystery man of Sandy Cove. I can't recall exactly when I first learned the incredible story of Jerome, but I do know it was when I was a kid, and that the story has always stuck with me. And when I considered how to best share the story here on Nighttime, there was really only one thing I knew for sure. I wanted to feature Fraser Mooney Jr., the author of what I consider to be the definitive book on this case. His book, which was released in December of 2008 by Nimbus Publishing, is titled Jerome, Solving the Mystery of Nova Scotia's Silent Castaway. Now, what makes this book so special, at least in my opinion, is that it does a lot more than simply recount the known facts of Jerome's story. Fraser managed to bring to life the time, the location, and perhaps most effectively, all the other people involved in the story, not just Jerome. And when I contacted Nimbus and Fraser Mooney, I wasn't sure they'd be interested in giving any of their time or attention to a now 11-year-old book. But that was far from the case. What I've learned is that to Fraser, this isn't just a book or a story. It's the result of a lifelong fascination with this mystery man. And the writing of the book itself was a labor of love that he seemed delighted to spend an hour talking to a complete stranger about. And as far as his publisher, Nimbus, they too were excited to have the book discussed. In fact, they sent me a few copies that I'll be offering to listeners at nighttime. I'll tell you more about that at the end of the episode, as well as on my social media. So with all that said, let's get to my conversation with Fraser Mooney Jr.
1: Uh, My name is Fraser Mooney. I'm from Yarmouth, Nova Scotia. I'm in uh, communications and public relations, but I had studied history at St. Mary's University and, and followed that up with getting a journalism degree from Ryerson in, in Toronto. I never really worked much as a journalist, uh, fell into the, the dark side, as as reporters say, and got more into the public relations end of things. I guess I was always familiar with the story of Jerome in, in, a, in, a, in a vague way, as, as many people are. Um, in this part of the province the uh, but i was also growing up very interested in in you know local mystery stories we have the the yarmouth runic stone which which sits in the yarmouth museum with with mysterious writing on it that think they think could be uh, the result of vikings or or someone else um not too far from here we have the the shag harbor a uh, UFO incident which, ha- which happened in, in uh, 1967 a little further up, Oak Island. So I was always very interested in those local mystery stories. So the, the story of Jerome is quite familiar to a lot of people in this area, but for many years there weren't a lot of the details that were known. And uh, my, my brother Phil actually married a girl, Darlene Camot, who grew up in St. Alphonse, which is where Jerome lived out much of his life, and that's where he died, was in St. Alphonse, in, in the Acadian region of Clare. So I always kind of knew about the story, but like many people, didn't know a lot of the details. There was a lot of misinformation out there for many years. For instance, um, people used to think, oh, Jerome, he's the guy who had no arms and no legs. Well, he did, in fact, have arms, and the fact that he they said he did not speak at all, uh, during the entire time that he lived among the Acadians in, in Clare, but in fact, uh, as some research has, has uncovered, is he he did speak um, a number of times, which added actually added to the mystery even more. So, I was um, working uh, at CJLS in Yarmouth back uh, in the late 90s, and uh, one of my jobs was writing radio commercials, right? And... At the time, it was in 1994, so it was actually in the mid-90s, when um, the Acadian filmmaker Phil Comeau had produced a film... The Secret of Jerome, or Le Secret de Jerome, it was the first French Acadian film, and here in southwestern Nova Scotia, at our local twin cinema, it became a bit of a blockbuster, right? So I was thinking, as as someone who writes radio commercials, I thought, well, it'd be kind of neat to feature Jerome in a radio commercial, like, you know, if Jerome could, you know, if Jerome had legs, he would run down to city drugstore for, you know, the great savings on toilet paper or, or if Jerome could talk, he'd tell you all, all about the great deals at Sonyville pharmacy or something like that. <laughs> but the folks I was working with at CJLS, those, those are terrible ideas, which in hindsight, they were <laughs> terrible ideas. <laughs> pretty, pretty tasteless and probably, uh, uh, offensive as well. But, um, as I thought about it, I thought, you know, really, you know, here I am thinking about writing a a radio commercial featuring this Jerome character. I didn't know much about the the story at all, so I went to our our local library here in Yarmouth, and there didn't seem to exist uh, any, any book on this very interesting local mystery story. I mean, I found a few newspaper articles about it, so I, I kind of took those and, and read them, and then, as time went on, I would, you know, find another old article from a from a newspaper reprinted in a magazine from, you know, back in the early 1900s, and I would keep a little uh, file on it. And after after a couple of years of this, I found I had a a, a pretty thick stack of paper which said to me, there's actually more to the story than a lot of people know. And then as a way to kind of keep it all together, I started to uh, compile my notes and write things down. And eventually it started to form itself, itself into a book.
0: Now to, to get into the story, we'll start with kind of setting the scene here. Like this takes place in 1863 at Digby. T- tell me a bit about Digby back in this era. Like, w- What was life like and what type of place did Jerome end up in? So
1: in 1863, in this end of Nova Scotia, the southwestern end of Nova Scotia, Yarmouth, uh, Digby, Clare, really these areas were very, very prosperous at the time. This was before Confederation, um, the Confederation of Canada, when uh, a lot of our our trade and a lot of our economic activity happened between um, Nova Scotia and the New England states, or the Boston states, as they called them. Actually, some people around here today still call them the Boston states. And um, after Confederation, of course, our trade was directed to other parts of Canada, and I think uh, this part of Nova Scotia suffered uh, as a result of it. But in 1863, in in uh, Digby County, there was a, a booming business in, in the lumber industry. And, of course, the lumber industry fed the shipbuilding industry. And there were a lot of uh, really rich merchant ship owners who uh, sailed their ships out of Digby and out of Yarmouth and out of Weymouth to ports all over the world. And there was a time when we used to say that uh, Yarmouth uh, was... One of the biggest ports in North America per tonnage, and that was, of course, in the days of the wooden ships and the sails before before the iron ships came along. So, one interesting you know area within between Digby and, and Weymouth was the was Electric City, which was the the, the famous uh, logging operation. Deep in the deep in the woods of Digby County, where they first used uh, electricity to light their buildings and light light their uh, the, the streets in this logging operation, so it was really advanced for, for that uh, for that time period. And so within this this realm of quite busy economic activity, on uh, one morning in 1863, uh, this strange man appeared on the beach in Sandy Cove
0: before he arrived, like I understand the day before there was some kind of, some sort of suspicious things happening in and around the waters um, of Digby. Like, uh, as you just described there, there was a lot of hustle and bustle and ships coming and going. But I believe it was two ships that stood out in particular the night before his arrival. Can you tell me what, what you learned about them?
1: So what the uh, the popular story is, is that some of the villagers in the area of Sandy Cove and along Digby Neck had noticed these uh, two strange ships kind of weaving back and forth off the shore the night before uh, the man known as Jerome uh, arrived on the beach. Now, seeing ships in the bay was not that uncommon back in 1863. This is you know, the days before even the railway had gone through uh, Digby County. But uh, to see a ship or two ships kind of just sitting there not doing anything and not uh, not fishing or not unloading or not doing anything was a bit strange. And when Jerome arrived, or was he, when he was spotted the next morning on the beach, people thought, well, was it a result of a, a shipwreck or something? With, but it couldn't have been, because usually when a shipwreck happened along Digby Neck, and they did happen, the entire village would get together to go out first to, A, you know, rescue anyone who was, uh, who was uh, in danger of drowning, and B, the Salvage the ship itself. That's how a lot of these villagers uh, uh, made some extra money. Is when a ship ran aground, they were able to go out and confiscate as much stuff as they could. Mm-hmm. So nothing like that had happened that night, but yet here this strange man showed up on the beach the next day.
0: Now tell me about that. I heard a, di- a few different versions of what happened that next day after the odd ships were seen. Tell me kind of the version that you settled with after after your research. Like how is how does Jerome end up in Digby?
1: and that's that's a good point, because that one of the things when you when you read through a lot of the accounts uh, written about Jerome, which m- most of them of course were written many, many years later, there's a lot of different conflicting reports of. Of what exactly happened, of who found him, of under what circumstances he was found, uh, and 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 whatnot. So, kind of looking at all of those and and maybe drawing a line down the middle, I think we came up with a, a pretty uh, a pretty good idea of of what happened. So, uh, there was a, a a strange character who lived in Digby Neck for many years. He was known as the the Hermit of Sandy Cove, and uh, he was a, a fellow named Collie, Albright, or Colin Albright. And his family had lived uh, near the beach on Sandy Cove for, for many, many, many years. And as a young boy, he used to go with his brother and explore the beach and salvage whatever they could, whether it be, you know, clams or mussels or whatever for dinner. And uh, this morning, on uh, September of 1863, he and his brother were out on the beach, noticed something by uh, by the rock, by one of the large rock's near the near the high tide mark and they thought at first they thought it was a seal and as they got closer they realized this wasn't a seal this was a man figuring you know he was probably a dead man too they got a little closer and realized he was actually alive uh but was even what was even more strange is his Two legs were missing. Um, some said either above the knee or below the knee, but it was probably probably above the knee. And t- young boys are, would, would do. They kind of freaked out a little bit and went to find their dad. And their dad, you know, didn't didn't want to believe them. So they found two other gentlemen who were working in the fields. And when they went down to the beach, there was this fellow who was soaking, ringing wet. It had rained the night before. He was coughing. He obviously was having some kind of uh, uh, um, he was he was sick probably from from the experience he had gone through and when he saw these people coming he just tried to beat it for the water and of course he had no legs so he was he was dragging himself along by his, by his arms or trying to, to lift himself up on his, onto, his, onto his rear end and propel himself down the beach. Uh, they managed to wrestle him, uh, wrestle him to the ground. He was a very strong and powerful guy, despite the fact that he had some violent coughing fits. They managed to wrestle him, and at this point, he, he pretty much gave up. He, he passed out, and they took him up to the Albright house. Now, of course, the Albrights, Colin uh, Albright and his family, were a very poor poor family but they they took him in and put him by the fire and uh at that point no one really knew who he was where he came from why he lost his legs and uh moreover they didn't know what they were going to do with him
0: and once they had a chance to i guess like warm him up and dry him off and that sort of thing was there was like was there anything they were able to learn from this guy
1: well, the, yeah, the early reports do talk a lot about uh, the, the people of the village of Sandy Cove trying to at least ask him, where did you come from? Well, what was the name of the boat that, that dropped you on this beach or that abandoned you on this beach? And more importantly, how did you lose your legs or, how you know, why are your legs amputated? And for the first few days, at least, like I had mentioned earlier, he had a, a terrible cough. Um, probably as a result of the exposure that he was uh, that he had undergone being left in the rain on this cold beach in a, in a September morning, but um, he didn't really seem willing to or or able to talk. Now, this George Armstrong, who was a justice of the peace from, from further up the coast in Bridgetown, came, it was about 10 days after he was found, came to came to see him and was able to, to speak a couple of, or at least a few words in a couple of different languages and tried to speak to him in Italian and tried to speak to him in, in Spanish. And there was some recognition of, of the languages from from Jerome, but really not a whole lot by way of response. And so the fact that Jerome didn't seem willing to speak to people, and this is what the belief came to be, is that yeah he was able to speak, but he just didn't want to. So again, the conspiracy theory was that maybe he was under some vow of silence, like a, a member of a secret society, like the the Freemasons, or someone perhaps uh, a group even more sinister, or a vow of silence like a, a monk would be, would be under, or perhaps he was... Scared to speak unless he gives away some information that would uh, endanger his life or the life of a member of his family. So there were, there were attempts to, to try to talk to him and find out where he came from and why he was injured the way he was, but he just wasn't talking, or at least not giving very much uh, by way of information. When you read some of the stories about Jerome, they say, "Oh, he uh, uh, when he was found on the beach, he was dressed in these fine European clothes, with a silk shirt and a and a, a, a blue uh, jacket that might have been uh, a, a naval officer's jacket, that sort of thing." But really, the the first written account of someone. Seeing Jerome after he was found in 1863, there was a letter to the editor a few weeks later to, uh, to the Christian messenger, messenger newspaper by a fellow by the name of uh, George Armstrong, and he had, had been on Digby Neck and went to see Jerome a few weeks after he was found. There was no mention at all of what he was wearing. So a lot of the legends around, uh, in the mystery around Jerome, kind of focus on you know what he was wearing or what he might have said. When in fact they there is really no really clear record of of what of what he wore that day. Um, one of the things that they said that they noticed is that his his hands seemed soft and delicate. Now these. People who worked on Digby Neck—they worked in the fields. They worked as fishermen. Their hands would have been rough and calloused, and, and blisters, and that sort of thing. Jerome didn't have any of that, according to according to the legend. Uh, uh, and so they figured, well, the only person who wouldn't have rough, calloused hands uh, would be a gentleman, uh, an aristocrat, perhaps. So then, the the legend started to be spun. Well, maybe he was some, you know, uh, member of some foreign royal family who was. Uh, uh, sent into exile and ended up on this beach, and his legs were chopped off as a as a punishment or a warning. And so, a lot of really interesting uh, conspiracy theories started to be um, generated about him. But again, some of the first written accounts of people who saw him afterwards don't really back a lot of that up. So, right from the beginning, almost from the from the very beginning. The the theory started to spin around Jerome.
0: And I understand when he was found, he seemed to have a a little bit of like a care package, like some water and I believe bread. Is, Is there any truth to that or did you find evidence of this?
1: that that so that one does that one was uh, fairly accurate um they they said that when he was found there was a, a small uh, jug of water and in a tin of of what they called uh, hard tack or ship's biscuits which is a, a really hard bread that they would uh, use on board a lot of ships because it didn't it didn't go bad like uh, like the bread we know today it would be uh, pretty pretty bad on the teeth i would think too because it was so it was like eating a rock um and and one of the one of the uh, accounts the early accounts that he was also uh, afforded a small bundle of clothes too and again, no real mention of what those clothes looked like. so whoever left him on the beach wasn't Trying to abandon him to his death, they were they were giving him at least enough provisions to be able to survive a couple of days, so that uh, whoever might live in a in a nearby cabin or a nearby village might be able to to help him out further. Although you know, as small of a, a, a mercy as that was, this small bit of food and this mouthful of water, you know, leaving somebody on the beach seemingly in the in the middle of nowhere could almost be considered a death sentence it was mostly by luck that there was you know the Albright family that lived nearby that was able to able to discover him but there was there was some uh, some food and water that was was left there but again not a real good examination of what uh, what this tin of biscuits might have looked like that might have gave some clue as to what type of ship would have left him there
0: So with, with this man without legs, basically abandoned on the beach with, you know, maybe enough stuff to at least give him a fighting chance, uh, the, the community would have then had to step up to, to care for him. So can you kind of talk about the initial attempts the, the people of this community made to basically keep this man alive and look after him?
1: Well, right off the bat, with some of these theories that started to to spin around uh, Jerome, and and actually that's that's an important point is that when they tried to speak with him, he never um, and you know who are you? Where did you come from? He wouldn't really give a, 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 a clear, audible answer. Now, one of the first people to see him seemed to think that his name was was Matthew or Matteo. Um, eventually, he muttered something that sounded to someone like like the name jerome so that's how he, he came came to be be called jerome um so but at the time there was a bit of a, a bit of excitement about who this guy might be and why he was there so uh some members of the the village of, of sandy cove i think there might have been even a little competition among people to uh to put him up and to to support him, to you know to try to find out who he was because the Albright family couldn't couldn't do it. They were they were a pretty poor family, so he went uh, down the road to live with the Gidneys. Um, the Gidney family was quite prominent in uh, in Digby Neck at the time, and and indeed there's still Gidneys in in Digby uh, to this day. But uh, after a while, um, Jerome wasn't he wasn't. Um, He wasn't that nice of a house guest. He didn't seem very appreciative of any of the efforts that people were making to to clothe him or to feed him. Uh, He seemed to have a bit of a temper. And, of course, he wasn't really giving people much information about who he was or where he came from. So uh, the Gidneys soon started to look for, you know, maybe someone else who could look after him. And some of the early uh, beliefs that he might have been Italian or he might have been from Spain or even from Portugal, led people to think, well, if he's Italian or Spanish, chances are he's a Roman Catholic. He's a Catholic, and in Digby Neck at the time, there weren't very many Catholic families, and certainly whether there was no Catholic parishes or Catholic churches in the area, uh, the closest Catholic church would be across the St. Mary's Bay in, in Clare, among the Acadians. So you know, despite uh, the early enthusiasm for, for taking Jerome in, the uh, the novelty wore off pretty quickly, and they started to look for someone else to take him in and someplace else for him to live.
0: And that was when he he moved to with uh, I believe a guy named the Russian. Is that right? Yeah, they, they call the yeah. Russian. So what the, what is the story of of this guy and his connection with Jerome?
1: So so with uh, the folks on Digby Neck thinking they wanted to uh get rid of Jerome um they and again the belief that he might have been a Roman Catholic so they they were looking for you know another Roman or a Roman Catholic family to take care of him and of course that would have been over over across the day in Digby Neck um and they they also were interested in finding someone who might have some chance of communicating with with him because he wasn't responding very well to to some of their attempts to talk to him so they knew of a fellow he was a relatively new new guy over in Metagon he was a european from corsica and he spoke apparently spoke a number of different languages and his, his nickname was the russian he was jean nicola and although he was from corsica I believe his nickname called him the Russian is because he had ended up uh, as a soldier fighting in the Crimean War and had been captured by the Russians and probably had undergone... Um, not some very nice treatment and and the word is that he was able to escape and eventually had made his way uh instead of kind of going back to corsica or staying in europe he made his way across the ocean to to end up in matagan and there he 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 married uh, an Acadian woman who who was a widow uh, julette camo and um she had a daughter madeleine and they uh, had a small boarding house in Matagan. not not a very not a very nice one but uh, a house where they were able to to put some people up and earn, earn some extra money so someone who you know was able to speak a number of different languages in a, in a catholic home who was taking in boarders he was the perfect candidate to to uh to be the new home for for Jerome so they they sailed him across the bay and he ended up living in the home of the russian John Nikola
0: Hmm. Now, you mentioned this being a boarding house, which it would kind of imply that people are going to be paying some money to stay there. I understand it the, the Nova Scotia government kind of stepped up and, and found a unique way to handle the case. I actually saw some of the old documents about money that they were giving to Jerome. Did, do you know very much about how he was earning money or getting money?
1: Well and this was was an in, it, it, it always seems to attract a bit of attention in some of the the newspaper clippings of the time so it it seems like it was a, it was fairly unusual for the time now in Clare and in Digby County the people would have been at the time familiar with the concept of the poorhouse now there apparently there was one in Metagan and there was a very famous uh poorhouse in Marshalltown but um Jerome being someone who wasn't from Nova Scotia um he he wouldn't have been uh one of those ideal candidates for for provincial support but the the russian couldn't just take him in um you know out of the kindness of his own heart i mean to to feed someone and clothe someone costs some money so they made a, a special application To the Nova Scotia legislature or the government of Nova Scotia to um, provide some support for this uh, poor unfortunate is what they called him and the Jerome item would have been an item that appeared in the the blue books which were the what they called the budget of the province or the I I guess even before uh, 1867 it wouldn't necessarily been called the province of Nova Scotia but they applied to the government and they allotted um some some uh money to take care of jerome uh every month and it it amounted to about 104 dollars a year which you know to our standards doesn't sound like a whole lot but in a in a small uh community where you make your living you know either fishing or working in the woods it was probably a, a pretty tidy sum or a pretty comfortable sum to to look after this fellow now over the years the uh the that sum of money would have increased a little bit but the fact that he was uh, obviously a, a, a foreigner to to this country the fact that the government of Nova Scotia was able to allot this type of money for his care was at the time a little bit unusual
0: yeah definitely especially with it being its own line item like i'm just picturing Today's budget, where it's like you know, this much for the schools and for the roads, and Jerome five dollars.
1: <laughs> exactly, there it was his name right on the Jerome, the Jerome item they called it, and so yeah, it wasn't just money for the poor or the poor, even in in Clare or Digby County. It was the money for Jerome, and so he, he came with his own. Uh, he came with his own stipend. So uh, for those looking to, to put him up, after that application was made and approved. Um, it would be more attractive in, in later years for people who, who might be looking to to bring him in
0: mm-hmm. and now with with Jerome living between these homes and at this point in the story, staying with the Russian, he wasn't able to speak. he of course was missing his legs. How did he spend his time? Like what is said about his basically his personal life or how he spent his leisure time?
1: Well, one of the things that he, re- he really seemed to enjoy was being in the company of children. Um, he, was, he seemed very distrustful. He didn't trust or he was paranoid around grown-ups, around adults. And, and I can understand why, because they were always pestering him with questions, you know, who are you, where did you come from? Um, so he would often um, play with the kids outside, apparently once, the, once his amputations had healed, he would uh, he would even run in the fields with the kids and he could run very fast and he was a, he was a strong guy he, his arms were very powerful he would put on feats of strength for the kids by lifting them up or or lifting up arm loads of of firewood and, and carrying them in the house but one of the things when when he was with kids when he was with children is they said he would speak to the children when he wouldn't speak to the adults and he seemed to be more more apt to try to communicate with kids. Uh, again, you know the adults were always pestering him with questions. So, you know whether that is true or not. I happen to think it might be true that he was more inclined to um, be willing to and to be able to uh, speak to children more so than, than more so than adults.
0: Wow. It's just speaking to the the idea of Jerome actually communicating. One really kind of mysterious part of this story is the appearance of these two mystery women who apparently showed up and had a conversation with them. What, can you tell me what you've learned of this?
1: Now, and so that is one of the uh one of the outstanding mysteries of the story—that that's the mystery within the mystery, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. So Jerome um, lived with with the Russian for for a number of years and became quite close with with his wife and daughter. But um, Gillette, the uh, the wife, uh, passed away of tuberculosis. And so the Russian was, was, he had remarried. He remarried uh, a woman named uh, Victoria. and um, But shortly after that, he had made the decision he was going to return to Corsica. He was going to go back to Europe. So Victoria's um, brother, uh, Deje Camo, lived up the road in, in St. Alphonse. So again, they packaged Jerome up and moved him from Metagan to Saint alphonse which which today is only uh, a short you know five or ten minute drive but in those days it would have been you know it would have been a day's journey up the road in a in a bouncy uh, uncomfortable wagon and so after living in the in the household of deje Camon for a number of years, there's a strange story um, of how one afternoon um, these two women came to visit and they very mysterious women, they no one knew who they were, where they came from. And they had wanted to speak to Jerome. Now, the fact that someone came to one want and wanted to see Jerome was not unusual. He was he was a bit of a, uh, a bit of a sideshow in uh, in the Camo house at the time. And for many years, they uh, they put a little donation box by the side of the door, and people would come on a daily basis to uh, to see Jerome and to view the mystery man. And they would you know nudge them to put a little money in the in the donation box. And and usually every Sunday after church, people would gather up and, and head over to the Kamo Mole home in St. Alphonse to to take a look at Jerome. But but this time was a little bit different, and the women wanted to speak to Jerome in private. And Jerome reluctantly uh, went on to another room, and the, the women followed, and they shut the door. And the people in the house started to hear the women talking to him. And it was in a foreign language, a language they couldn't understand. And to their surprise, Jerome, they could hear Jerome's voice Talking back, he was having a conversation with these two women, and people were quite shocked in the house because he never really spoke to anybody at all. Um, after several minutes of this, the door opened, the women walked out, said thank you, and and left. Now, reading some of the reading that story years later, you think, okay, that's probably just one of the many legends. But there were a number of, of credible people who um, had witnessed the women leaving the house. One of them was George Blacketer, who went on to become a member of parliament for Yarmouth. Uh, he was a boy at the time, and his family owned a, uh, a lumber operation in a store, and they, they did deliveries along the French shore, and he was there visiting Jerome, or visiting the Camo family at the time, and he had watched these women leave when it had happened. So who were they? No one No one seems to know. There there was many accounts of people writing to the Camoes um wanting to know more about jerome from different parts of the world in the united states usually the southern united states because at the time uh, jerome was really you know one of the most famous anonymous men in the world his the story had appeared in a number of newspapers all over the world so there were people who thought jerome might be a long lost relative someone who ran away from home that sort of thing so were these women um people who knew jerome were they um Relatives of his—that is a really big question mark on the story. And I think, um, at the end of the day, and at the end of the book, and at the end of the story, when we say, you know, there's still, uh, you know, there's still some mystery left in this story, and and that's one of the big ones.
0: Yeah, and still mystery left is almost an understatement. Where really, there's the, nothing really is is learned from Jerome because he would. Not soon after this, he would die, but while living in the home of um, the Camo the home you mentioned, without ever having explained himself and without the the truth ever coming out.
1: Well, and, and that's right now. And one of the one of the uh, the, the ongoing um, uh, uh, kind of I guess myths about Jerome is that he never said a word. Mm-hmm. Now, as as I had explained, he did seem to. Um, when no one was around to try to, to try to speak with children there were times when um they tried to get some kind of response out of him and and uh, this would have been when he was still living with the russian in in matagan uh he tried to ask him um what was the name of the ship and he, he had said something that sounded a lot like colombo um one of the times they asked him uh where he had come from and he said trieste which is a it's a a city in in, uh, northern italy and so you know there were some clues that were were dropped along the way but you know after many years and and uh i think as the years went by and as he got older he became less and less inclined to inclined to speak and um on one day, and in, in, in April April 15th of 1912, he uh, he passed away in the home uh, of uh, Deje and Zabeth Camo. and it was uh, for someone who really didn't like attention. It was a pretty uh, auspicious day for him to pass away because, as many people know, April 15th of 1912 was the day Titanic sank.
0: Wow, it, what was the, the cause of death in Jerome's passing?
1: Well, all accounts are that Jerome was a pretty healthy guy. He was he was quite uh, uh, physically powerful. His arms were quite powerful. He was in generally pretty good health his entire life that he was living there. But now, when he died in in 1912, he had been there for we're looking at uh, nearly 50 years. So some of the some of the beliefs that he was probably you know late teens early 20s when he was found on on uh, sandy cove beach and digby neck so and then living amongst the acadians for for a number of years he was probably close to 70, 70 years old by the time he died um in the days before he died he had uh again had a nasty a nasty cough and some breathing difficulties, so it could have been a, a bronchitis or a pneumonia. The, the the medical treatments available at that time were were not like they are today, and and, and a, a nasty chest infection or pneumonia could be could be deadly for someone uh, of 70 years of age. So, despite being in generally pretty good health for his entire life, um, he got sick one day and and died.
0: Were the mysteries not solved, of course, there are the different theories that we talked about with him possibly being nobility or uh, from another country or a pirate or somebody who was silent by choice. One of the kind of more down-to-earth theories that I saw is one that he could potentially be a missing man from New Brunswick, which is like the province next door to Nova Scotia. Did, Did you pursue that kind of theory much?
1: well yes and 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 they're really it, it was it was interesting how the sort of the mystery around who jerome was um for many years even from from 1863 when he was first found right up in, until he died his story seemed to um uh, appear in newspapers every every 10 years or so there'd be uh, um the uh, Halifax newspapers or newspapers from the United States would follow up on this story about Jerome. And but um, whenever whenever some of these stories would appear, uh, a few days later or a few weeks later, there'd be uh, a letter to the editor from someone saying, "Well, you know, there was a fellow who was injured in New Brunswick and um, he lost his legs in a in a in a, in a um, lumber accident, and." lived there for for a while until the people really were tired of of putting up with him, and they put him on a ship and sent him away. But for many years, these stories about his connection or a possible connection to New Brunswick seemed to be ignored or or overlooked. But when you start to put the pieces together and you take the newspaper clippings and line them up by date and whatnot, it, it seems to paint a story of... A connection between this fellow who lost his legs in New Brunswick and the fellow who showed up in Nova Scotia there's a connection there that is is pretty hard to ignore now the basic part of the story is this this uh, the stranger showed up at a lumber camp in in 1859 and it was a particularly cold winter in 1859 Um, after being there for for a few days he had fallen into the river um, and, and caught hypothermia, and his, his legs caught uh, serious frostbite. Was dragged out by a, by a group of uh, lumberjacks, and brought to Gagetown, where his legs, his frostbitten legs, had to be amputated. And then he was sent back to uh, to the to nearby where the lumber camp was, and the closest town was Chipman, New Brunswick, which was an old lumber town, and uh, put up with a family there for for uh, at least a couple of years, and. The people of Chipman, New Brunswick, after a while, didn't want to put up with this guy anymore. And even his personality seemed to be uh, very similar to what we learned of Jerome later on. He was he was hard to get along with. He didn't talk. He um, had you know fits of fits of anger and uh, um, had a, quite a temper on him. And after a few years, the the people of Chipman, New Brunswick. Um, Said we can't put up with this guy anymore. He's not from Chipman. He probably didn't even lose his or didn't even uh, uh, he didn't lose his legs in Chipman. He lost them in Gagetown, where they're amputated, and he was found in a, in a different county altogether. So why are we putting up with him? And so a, a scheme was was concocted to uh, hire a guy to take this fellow out of Chipman, New Brunswick, take him down the river to Saint John, put him on a boat, and send send him away i think the people of chipman thought that he was being sent to uh, sent to, back to england where he could find a trip back to whatever country he came from but when you line up like i said the the newspaper clippings and the accounts of the situation and the timelines of the situation of the fellow who lost his legs as a result of this uh, unfortunate accident in the in the river on the in the lumberwoods of new brunswick and the time uh, Jerome showed up in Sandy Cove, it seems to be that there's, it it would be a pretty big coincidence if they weren't related.
0: But, But this is just one of many theories, and I understand that this one does have some controversy around it. Like, there are people who seem to not want to believe that this is the explanation for
1: Jerome. Well and that was, and that always seemed to be the case. and And uh, even as early as eighteen sixty three when he was first found, there was talk that there was this fellow in New Brunswick who who it could have been the same guy, but people seemed very reluctant to want to believe that. And one of the things I think that that led to this reluctance, there's probably a few reasons, but one of them is that when he was found on the beach in Sandy Cove, the the belief was that his legs had been amputated recently that they were still oozing blood they were still uh still fresh wounds from the amputation but the fellow in new brunswick would have had his his amputation um several years earlier back in 1859 so it it couldn't have been the same guy because um his 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 amputations were too fresh but as as later commentators had said there's a, a fellow a historian in yarmouth who's passed away now by the name of arthur thurston and he's known as the the pigeon man of yarmouth and he was known as the pigeon man because he lived in a house with thousands of pigeons but he was a he was a brilliant scholar and a historian who wrote a lot about the civil the american civil war and talked about um people who had amputations as a result of injuries in the Civil War um, back in the 1860s still really wouldn't have healed completely, even uh, as far as the 1920s. So someone who had his legs amputated, no matter how skillfully, in 1859 still possibly could have looked like they were fresh amputations in, in 1863. So I think there was a reluctance to believe that they were the same person, but at the same time, I think they're um just you know reading some of the accounts people enjoyed um they enjoyed the mystery they liked those theories of the fact that this fellow this fellow who was really hard to get along with could have been um a priest under a vow of silence or a, a prince who was exiled from his from his home country there was um, only a few years before he was found uh, the book uh, the man in the iron mask had come out by Alexander Dumas and in it there's a you know the the person who was who was exiled to prison and forced to wear a mask and not speak to people and you know they they thought you know there could be uh, a a similar fellow sitting right here on our on our back porch in Mm. in uh, in Clare of Nova Scotia so I think there was a refusal to believe it could be as simple as uh, a fellow who lost his legs in the in the lumberwoods.
0: Yeah, I could see that. Just like in just talking about um, another example with the mystery in Oak Island, uh, people may not have wanted to believe this more grounded explanation for Jerome. Just like people who are into Oak Island don't want to think it's just you know a sinkhole on an island somewhere. It's like you know the the more um, extravagant explanation and theory is the one that kind of is is more cherished. <laughs>
1: Very much so, and, and and even you know back uh, back in the mid to late 1800s, I mean mystery men that was a very popular thing. So I think there was a a, a great desire to grasp on to the, the the more uh, spectacular aspects of the mystery, and like I said, just like uh, like Oak Island, and uh, you know where there might be simpler explanations, but uh, certainly not as exciting. But at the same time, really. This is still just another theory. You know, as as much as the connection seems to be valid, um, we really don't know for sure.
0: It was at about this point that the formal interview ended. But as it often happens, some fascinating stuff came up in the conversation we had after. Fortunately, in this case, I forgot to end the recording. We were discussing some feedback Fraser received from attendees at a series of public lectures he gave about his work on Jerome's story. As it turned out, the attendees thought of something I nor Fraser had. They thought of a modern way to solve this mystery once and for all, however unethical it would be.
1: One of the things that came up at almost every time I gave a public talk about Jerome. And it hadn't even occurred to me when I when I wrote the book was that well no one knows where he, where he's from why not use DNA evidence And I'm thinking okay these people must be watching CSI or something because at the time I wouldn't even have thought DNA evidence would be uh, you know it would be something you could use but now you can order this stuff through the mail but really I mean Jerome for the most part wanted to be wanted to be left alone and there, it'd be quite an intrusion to exhume... His body to uh, to extract any kind of DNA material to, to to do that sort of testing, and even beyond that, he um, no one's really sure where in the Metagen Cemetery his grave is. It was said that when he died, uh, he was buried in the section of the graveyard that was reserved for babies that died before they were baptized. So, if you can imagine, at the time, poor poor babies who who died in infancy were had their own section of the cemetery. Um and Jerome was there, so with a little bit of effort, i suppose in, in the original church in Metgan uh that was there at the time had burned down, and a lot of the a lot of the records had had gone with it, so where Jerome's grave was exactly has been lost, but with a little bit of effort, you could probably identify at least the area i don't know use ground penetrating radar or something, get the boys from from uh from oak island come down here to uh <laughs> to uh investigate and, and where an adult-sized human with no legs was buried amongst uh, a bunch of babies and, and find his grave. But that would be uh, an incredible intrusion, I think, on, on poor Jerome. But at the same time, if, if someone uh, was going to do some kind of project like that, I'd probably be, be standing in line to, to witness it.
0: I want to end this episode with a massive thanks to Fraser Mooney Jr. for taking the time to share this amazing story. Frazier, Nova Scotia may be home to some captivating mysteries, but without researchers and storytellers like you, I'm not sure we'd even know about them. Your book certainly makes Nova Scotia a more interesting place, and I thank you for that. Next, I want to thank Nimbus Publishing for donating several copies of Fraser's book that I'll be prizing off in a listener draw. This draw will be done via my Patreon page at patreon.com slash nighttime podcast, and all patrons are eligible. I just made a post on Patreon that you simply need to like in order to have your name entered. On November 10th, I'll choose a few names from the list of likes and send you out the book as well as some nighttime swag. And next, a big shout out to the Canadian bands Voxomnia and Paragon Cause who provide the music for nighttime. You can check out these great bands in the link in the episode notes. And of course, the biggest thanks of all goes out to everyone listening. Without you, I'd have no good excuse to spend so much of my time putting this show together. And for anyone out there who wants to support Nighttime, please consider supporting my Patreon campaign. For a dollar a month, you can access the ad free premium feed, which provides early releases of the episodes. And then for just a couple dollars more, you can access the Nightcap After Show episodes, in which I and a guest climb even further down the rabbit holes than what you'll hear in the main episodes. You can join by visiting patreon.com/slash nighttime podcast. And with that said, I'd like to thank the current patrons of the show and welcome the new members to the group. Jack, William, And Andre, I appreciate your generous support of Nighttime. For anyone else who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a big hand by telling your friends about me and leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or whichever equivalent you use. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities on or off the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I use the handle at NighttimePod. If you have any story ideas or want to give some feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you at nighttimepodcast at gmail.com. Now, until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte. Alexa, play Happiness by Dog Day. Okay, Google, play Happiness by Dog Day.